Folks, it's on a very rare occasion that you will ever find me wearing a clerical collar. Since I've come here as your minister, I've not worn one once, and I don't really intend on wearing a collar anytime soon. But in the past, on a few occasions, I've put it on for maybe a funeral or occasionally a visit to a hospital or a nursing home, sometimes just to identify myself to those around me. But the thing is, much like having a beard, being the one wearing the collar means you're the one who notices it the least. And I was once uh, doing a funeral in Railway Street and I was driving past the front of the meeting house uh, in Lisburn and there were men working at the road right outside Railway Street meeting house. And so I stopped and I said, look, I'm really sorry, but there's going to be a funeral here in about an hour's time. And so if possible, could you make sure that you're finished up and the road is cleared before that happens? No problem, they said, and I thought that was the end of it. It was only a while later that I was told that somebody else had also stopped and suggested that the work needed to be finished before the funeral, to which the workman replied, don't worry, that wee priest with the beard's already told us. Now here's the point. On that day, to those men, I looked like a priest. That's what I looked like. If they'd taken any time to get to know me, they would no longer confuse me with a priest, let me assure you. The external, what they saw, didn't match the internal reality of who I am. The external didn't match the internal And our passage today in Genesis 17, well, it's all about an external sign. It's about something that happens on the outside of a person's body. It's about the sign of circumcision. But as we work through it together, I hope that we will see that for a Christian person, the external sign and the internal reality should be one and the same. They shouldn't be different. They should match each other. You might want to have your Bibles open at Genesis 17. This is quite an involved chapter of the Bible. There's a lot packed into one chapter, uh, but certainly we can understand what's going on. The internal reality for Abraham and for Sarah and for Christian people, the internal reality is new life. New life brought about by the covenant that God makes with his people. I'm sure you noticed as we read the passage, the word covenant comes up a lot. And a covenant is really just an agreement between two or more persons. And we've seen covenants uh, or the covenant uh, being spoken about previously in Genesis. And so again, here's another chapter of the Bible, which is really foundational because in this chapter, God reiterates or reaffirms the covenant he's already made with Abram. Remember Genesis 15, where the animals were cut in two and there was a a smoking pot and a flaming torch passing between the pieces. Remember that, Genesis 15? This covenant is an agreement between God and Abram, 
along with all of Abraham's descendants after him. But the covenant is entirely at God's initiative. It is God who suggests the covenant and it's God who bears the weight of upholding the covenant. He not only upholds his side of the covenant, but he actually upholds Abram's side also. We see that in our passage this morning. You can see it's continually referred to by God as my covenant. Not our covenant. God calls it my covenant. Verse 7. God says, I will establish my covenant. He does require obedience from Abraham. Verse 9. As for you, you shall keep my covenant. But what we'll see today is that that's not an entrance requirement. That's not something Abraham has to do to get into the covenant, but it's a responsibility that comes from already being in covenant with God. It's about the external matching the internal reality. New life is brought about by the covenant that God makes with his people. That's what we see in our passage today, new life. It's an external reality that gives us internal new life. We see three aspects of the covenant. I want to look at three aspects of the covenant in our passage today. Firstly, we have covenant blessings. Then we have the covenant sign. And finally, covenant responsibility. So that's where we're, we're headed today. First of all, covenant blessings. We've seen before that this agreement that God makes with Abram is for Abram's good. It's for Abram's good. And, and we see the three Ps. Remember the three Ps of God's promise? God uh, bundled together there between verses 2 and 8. God promises once again people, presence and place. In these promises, God is giving Abram a new life. And it's sort of epitomized for us. The, the peak of this is, is shown to us in verse 5 by God giving Abram a new name. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Like I say, I'm so grateful for that. I don't have to keep checking if we can call him Abraham yet. But these blessings are a gift from God. And they come from God as new life for Abraham. A new name, new life. Those of us who are Presbyterian and Reformed, well, we see here in this passage a very central theme of the Bible. And that is, our God is a covenant-making God. Our God is the God of the universe. The Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And yet he stoops down into his, into his creation and he calls people, individual people like you and me and Abraham. He calls them into a relationship with himself. A holy God who blesses sinful people with the gift of new life. And here in this passage, we see that God isn't only dealing with one man, but God deals with families. 
Up to this point, he's been dealing with Abraham. But in this chapter, the promises of God are continually given, not just to Abraham, but to his descendants after him. And Sarai is given new life, isn't she? Verse 15, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. She's given a new life as well. She's included in the blessings of God. God has established the family unit, the household, as the way in which he blesses the world. As Presbyterians, we see this as really important. Have you ever wondered why is it that we measure the church in families? Have you ever wondered that? Well, it's because we believe that God doesn't only deal with individuals. He deals with families. And so in the church, what we are is a family made up of families. And there are blessings from God for all those in the church. Everybody here today, every one of us, everybody who has membership in the church is blessed by God. Genesis 17 is the formal establishment of the church of God in the Old Testament. The blessings and promises of God were not for Abraham, just as Abraham, as an individual, but for his whole family. We see in the very last verse of the chapter that all the men of his house, all of them, born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner, they were circumcised with him. So this is the first church participating in the first sacrament. In the New Testament, after Jesus has lived and died and risen again, this whole pattern, what happens in Genesis 17, is repeated in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, Peter preaches to the crowd gathered and he says this. He says, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Look, I'm not going to make the argument today that baptism has been replaced by circumcision, or sorry, that uh, circumcision has been replaced by baptism. I've made that argument before, um, and we're going to be having a baptism here in Kings Mills, Lord willing, in a few weeks. So you can listen carefully on that day, or you can come and ask me privately, and we can talk these things through. But I want you to notice the similarities between Genesis 17 and Acts chapter 2. What happens is God makes a promise. It's offered freely. It's offered at no cost. The promise is to you. And to your children. So just like in Genesis 17. When all the male members of the church are circumcised. In Acts 2. All the members of the church are baptised. And so Acts chapter 2. Is the first New Testament church. Participating in the first New Testament sacrament. And so here's the application. Here's why it matters for us. 
God has made a covenant to bless his covenant people. God blesses us. And he does bless us as individuals. But he does so in and through the family of God, the church. The church is so important for us. And there's no place for a Christian outside of the church. As God's people here on earth, we are blessed through membership in the church. In the church, we hear God's word and we participate in the sacraments. That's how God blesses us. That's how we receive the covenant blessings of God. But the blessing that we receive comes at a cost. And we see that in our second point, the covenant sign. The ceremony of circumcision, well, that was nothing new. It was practiced well before Abraham's time in many places across the world, not just in the ancient Near East. But what God did was he took this human practice and he filled it with his meaning. You may or may not have noticed that I titled the sermon Cutting a Covenant. The reason for that is that God is confirming the covenant he made in Genesis 15. And the word used in Genesis 15, which we have translated as made in our Bibles, is actually the Hebrew word cut. So when God made a covenant with Abram, he actually cut a covenant. And we saw that when the animals were cut in two. Here in our passage this morning, we see another cutting of the covenant. Namely, the cutting off of the foreskin of all the males in the household. Throughout the book of Genesis, the theme of the sword crops up. The sword. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve are sent out of the presence of God. And what stops them from coming back in? Do you remember? There's a flaming sword that is placed to guard God's holy presence from human sinfulness. And so the point is this. If you want to get back to God's presence and blessing, well then you've got to go through the sword. Anyone who would seek to enter God's presence would be killed by the flaming sword. What God does here in our passage today with this ceremony of circumcision, which is a ceremony of, of ritual cleansing, it's, it's cutting away. It's a, a ceremony of cutting away sin or uncleanness. And they might not have used a sword, they probably used a knife, but... What's a knife but a tiny little sword? Circumcision symbolizes sin being cut away. It symbolizes facing the sword. Circumcision is not a random choice. It's filled with meaning by God. In circumcision, blood is spilled. The sword is faced in order to enter into the presence of God's blessings. But there's another distinction, or sorry, there is a distinction between the way that Abraham's household practice and all other people's. For other people's, it was likely something done for a meal as he reached maturity. Perhaps a sign of entering manhood from boyhood. Perhaps something that was done before his wedding night. 
But God tells Abraham in verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Again, not a random choice. God fills it with meaning. The eighth day is significant. The eighth day is one day after the last day of the week. That might seem pretty obvious. Seven days in a week, so the eighth day is one after that. Okay, so think about it to a Jewish mindset. It's, it's one day after the Jewish Sabbath. One day after Saturday. The eighth day is a Sunday. The very day that Jesus rose from the dead. Bringing new life to all who believe in him. So in circumcision, God is placing, I, I admit, in seed form. But he's placing the meaning of new life through the resurrection of Christ by commanding that it be done on the eighth day. But it's also significant that it's given to babies. You see, each one of us as human beings are sinful by nature. Sin is something we are born with. It's not something we develop as we grow older. And so in having this sacrament applied to an eight-day-old baby, God is saying even this adorable little baby As adorable as they are, even this baby is sinful and must face the sword to have his sin cut away. Blood must be spilled for this child to enter into the people and blessings of God. And at eight days old, well, the child can't do it for himself. He can't save himself. New life for this child is the gift of God. Friends, can you see how this points us to Jesus? Jesus' blood was spilled. Jesus faced the sword of God's wrath and judgment. In Jesus, sin was dealt with. So the sacrament given to Abraham was a symbol of what Jesus would do on the cross. And again, this is the gift of God. Because we, in our sinfulness, well, we can't do anything to save ourselves. We need a saviour. We need the blood of Jesus spilled for us in order that we can enter into the presence and blessings of God. Since his blood has now been spilled, and since the sword of God's holy judgment against sin has been faced by Jesus in his death, Well, thankfully, we no longer have a bloody sacrament. We now have baptism, which is still a ritual cleansing. It symbolizes the removal of sin. Our infants are born sinful. Babies are in need of God's cleansing through the work of Jesus Christ. In baptism, our babies are brought into God's people and his blessing. In the same way Abraham was commanded by God, we give the sacrament not to babies only, but to anybody, anyone who comes in to God's people. We don't only baptise babies in the Presbyterian Church. We we baptise adults who are coming into God's people, into the membership of the church, the fellowship of the church. But membership comes with responsibilities. And that brings us to our final point, covenant responsibilities. 
And listen, this is where the rubber really hits the road. So if you've been snoozing up to this point, now's the time to wake up. The passage before us today has a really hard warning for us to hear. Abraham, in his sinfulness, well, he still thinks he and Sarah can help God's plan along through Ishmael. God agrees to bless Ishmael, but Ishmael is not the child of promise. Look at what verses 20 and 21 say. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes and I will make a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac. Ishmael is not the child of promise. But do you notice verse 26? He still receives the covenant sign. That very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael. And so here's the warning. You can be part of the church. You can be a baptised member of the church. And in doing so, you are blessed. Listen, you are blessed above and beyond those who are outside of the church. But the internal, your heart... Well, it has to match with the external. Throughout the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, continually we're told that our hearts need to be circumcised. Jeremiah 4 verse 4 literally says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts. And so what this passage is teaching us is that there are people here today who are members of the church, people who have been baptised, but who are not believing in God in their hearts. Friends, your inward belief must match the outward practice. Just being here on a Sunday will not save you. Putting money into the offering plate will not save you. It's only faith in Jesus Christ which will save you. If you have not yet submitted to him as your saviour and Lord, now's the time. This is the day to make your internal life match the external. But the warning works both ways because those in the church who have been brought in through the sacrament of baptism well you have a responsibility that your outward behavior matches the inward God has already established this covenant with Abraham and yet he commands him in verse 1 of chapter 17 walk before me and be blameless this is an expectation for the people of God What are we to do? We are to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Paul teaches in Romans 4, we are to walk in the footsteps of Abraham. And so if we are to walk in those footsteps, we too must walk before God and be blameless. This is the work of the Holy Spirit, sanctifying us who have been called into covenant relationship with God. Basically, 
If you've had your sin removed by Christ, well then you should walk in a sinless manner. Our lives should be humble. When we realise how defiled we are by sin and how far short we fall of living up to and indeed walking in the grace shown to us in our baptism. Through our baptism, when we witness the baptism of others, we are assured of pardon from sin. We draw strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we were baptised. And we draw that strength so that we can keep killing our own sin and becoming alive by his grace. We are spurred to try to live by faith. To have our human relationships defined by holiness and righteousness. To walk with each other in love as a family. That's what is proper for those who have been baptised by the same spirit into one body, the church. The new life that comes through God's covenant requires us to have a whole new way of living. New life is a blessing of the covenant. It is a gift from God to those who are part of his church. This new life comes at a cost. That cost is seen in the sign of circumcision. The sword must be faced to receive new life. Jesus has faced that sword on our behalf so that we may enter into God's presence. So that as he ascends the hill of the Lord, he takes us with him. This new life requires us in the church to ensure that whatever's going on externally matches whatever is going on internally and vice versa. We who are baptised into church membership, we need to submit to Jesus and have our hearts circumcised. Those who belong to Christ must walk before him and be blameless. Let me pray for us.